0: I think that oftentimes, and I hear it a lot, even from my uh, young athletes, you know, all the way down to age 10, we just really don't know what is okay and what's not okay. So we enter into sport and these coaches are saying all these things. And I know to this day, my mom's just kind of like, well, why didn't you tell me he was saying those things? And it's like, well, that's what I thought was the expectation to make you the best.
1: This is your host, Natalie Allport, and welcome to the All In Podcast podcast. On today's podcast, we have a deep, vulnerable, informative, and important conversation on how athletes can deal with and reprocess trauma. Today's guest is Paige Roberts, who has a whole host of certifications and education that I won't uh, dive into as she will go into her background as we get into the podcast. But she does performance neuro training, and that involves tools like brain spotting, light therapy, sports psychology. And in this episode, We talk about whether it's injuries, mental health or traumatic events, the tools and therapies that can help you, as well as low cost or free things that you can do to improve your mental health and performance. So she's not only going to talk about things that she does, her experience and why she does what she does and how she helps athletes in a therapeutic setting, but things that you can do right now uh, to help yourself from home. Now, I just want to give a trigger warning that we do talk about trauma such as suicide, eating disorders, depression, anxiety, and sexual abuse. So if that's going to bring up too much for you, um, just letting you know ahead of time that those are things that will be discussed. Hopefully this podcast is beneficial if you have been through or going through any of those things, because she talks about some tools that could help and things that you could deal with, as well as I just appreciate her being open and vulnerable and sharing her story with some of these things. That I think is beneficial for other athletes to hear and know it's okay to go through these things, seek help and speak about it because that can help others also feel comfortable in uh, sharing the space and sharing their story. We talk about so many different tools that are at your disposal to improve your nervous system, your response to stress and trauma, uh, as well as recover from injury and improve your performance and your wellness and your HRV as an athlete. So without further ado, let's go all in. Welcome to the All In Podcast. Today I'm joined by Paige Roberts. Paige, thank you so much for coming on.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. Super excited to get to chat about different modalities that athletes and retired athletes can utilize to strengthen their nervous system and really reach their peak in sports and in life.
1: Awesome. I'm so excited to talk about these tools, but I'd love to first like dive into your background. So, what what did you do to, you know, get to where you are today and you know what why are you passionate about what you do? Oh,
0: goodness. So, um I was obsessed with uh, sports and really exercise from very small age. You know, I grew up in the very high Rocky Mountains in Colorado, and there really wasn't a lot to do aside from like running and skiing and biking and hiking and climbing and rafting and all those things. Um, so I I always loved to push myself from, um, you know, a really young age. And then starting into school, I was identified as being dyslexic and having lots of issues with school. And I just really dreaded school and absolutely hated it, to be completely honest. And so it wasn't until about middle school that I really enjoyed school because we started having school sports. Um, And before that, I started skiing when I was like four and and all these things. But it really was, um, you know, there was no purpose in my mind to really caring about school until we started having the after school practices and that comradeship and all of that with sports. Um, But uh, it wasn't until about my um, sophomore year in high school where I started to get overuse injuries as a runner. And it was really devastating to me. And I didn't really understand why um, at the time. But the coach was really poorly, poorly qualified. Um, He was overtraining us and really pushing us to be the best. And we ended up winning state. Um, in Colorado for cross country and really high ranking and state and track and really amazing numbers. And um, I ended up having a stress fracture that broke through and uh, multiple stress fractures throughout my legs and He at the time was telling us that we were fat if we were over 120 pounds. And so really started restricting food and started the whole patterns of eating disorder, body dysmorphia, um, not enough nutrients, and really caused a lot of permanent damage to my legs and really a devastating time for me. And so my mom sought out a social worker in sport. And so I started seeing a social worker in sport when I was 17, and that really was beneficial and then went into really putting all into swimming because they were telling me that I shouldn't run anymore that it was really terrible and, and there was a lot of chronic pain and um, so on our way to our first swim meet we uh, crashed actually we were up very icy roads did a uh, deer ran out we did a 360 and went off the embankment and rolled a few times and ended up getting a concussion and tearing all the muscles in my shoulder and so another kind of blow to uh, my body and just being in chronic pain again and having to deal with all those pieces and at the time, they didn't really understand a lot about post-concussion syndrome. And so I went through the array of, you know, anxiety, depression, um, you know, exacerbated my neurodiversity and my ADD and dyslexia and some of those pieces. So really hard time. And so I just refocused on school. You know, I I graduated um, with, you know, most of my gen ed of my first two years of college done because I started going to uh, college classes concurrently and kind of you know, pulling out of high school because there really wasn't a lot of opportunity at that point to get to do sports anymore. And so then I went on to um, undergrad and started connecting with a coach there because I was really interested in exercise science because, of course, I love exercise and health and all these pieces. And uh, he really uh, mentored me a lot and found a way that I could actually cross train to still run cross country in college. So that was really big for me and a big healing piece. And really started to um, completely heal uh, aspects of the eating disorder at that time when I started getting more knowledge around sports nutrition and, um, you know, all of the, at that time, it was all the like eating no fat or restricting to like thousand calories a day, you know, all of that really negative messaging at that time. Cause I know that we have these trends of uh, maladaptive negative messaging. We've got this intermittent fasting and keto now, but at the time that was kind of where I was at and then understanding what nutrients my body needed. And that concurrently still with uh, seeking a therapist and working with my therapist for years uh, really got me healed into a great place Um, But while I was in undergrad, I had a fellow athlete friend complete suicide. And so he was the second string quarterback. And that was, you know, I was 19. So um, that was 19 years ago at this point. And um at that time we started like smoking pot and kind of drinking to Dustin and like really dealt with that grief in a negative way. And I don't know if I really thought it was a negative way being an undergrad when people the binge drinking and smoking pot and all that kind of stuff. Um and it wasn't until I graduated and started working in a hospital as an EKG technician and pursuing my master's in exercise science that I really started to realize my nervous system, regardless of the sports psych that I'd worked with in some of these pieces or social worker in sport, I still was dysregulated. I was having a lot of issues sleeping because I worked nights and I started seeing individuals coming into the ER and started reliving a lot of the trauma of um, Dustin completing suicide. Um, And mostly you would see a lot of um, individuals who had attempted um, young individuals. And so it kept bringing me back to that scenario of what happened with Dustin. And so I started to realize like, okay, I'm not okay. (laughs) And, And I'm okay. Cognitively, like I can make sense of the things. I know that, you know, this what's going on. I, I could figure that out, but there was this visual reaction, right? Like I still thought every time we were riding on icy roads in Colorado that we were going to crash. So my body would physiologically react. And, and then much like I said, when individuals would come to the ER, I had to like jump into, um, you know, my job and putting the leads on someone and uh, hearing the story of like, yeah, they found them with, you know, the, the hunting rifle or this or that. And um, it was bringing up all this arousal in my body. As we talk about in sports psychology, it's either cognitive anxiety or arousal or vice versa, which is first the chicken or the egg. And so I was feeling all this arousal and I was having a hard time sleeping. And so I know now, you know, I was reactivating trauma trauma memory networks. Um, and I was trying to deal with it with marijuana to sleep in this uh, these pieces and that was not working. And um, so at that time I started seeking out something Bigger, better. Um, And I found and came across this trauma reprocessing therapy called brain spotting. And it was like, oh, this is great for athletes. It was originally um, created around Dr. David Grand working with this figure skater. And then I started looking into how it was this performance anxiety piece. And it was all the symptoms that I was feeling with my performance at the hospital. And so I got some of this healing done on myself. And so this was 15 years ago. And it shifted things immediately Uh, when the roads were icy or wet, I was no longer bracing and catching my breath every time I thought we were going around a corner and we're going to crash. I stopped um, having such a and and I know now this fight, fight, freeze, frozen effect when I would um, even watching the news and see blood or trauma uh, or something of that nature. And so I was like, okay, this is cool. Like, this is what I want to do. Um, so I pulled out of the exercise science path and was like, you know, I, I can't work in a hospital and quit. And at the time it was really hard to quit because I was good at it. Um, but I knew intuitively that just wasn't right for me anymore. And then I wanted to help people in this way. So like Dr. David Grand, I went on to get my master's in social work from Colorado State University. And because that's where I was at at the time in Fort Collins, Colorado, and um, had to gain experience in that industry because I had only had experience in the exercise science world. And um, through that experience, it really opened my eyes to how many individuals are really struggling with adverse childhood experiences and traumas and and what that was doing to the nervous system. Because I started working in the Department of Human Services to get my um, two years of experience before I was able to get into graduate school, and um, I started really seeing that people uh, could not um, you know, perform optimally much like myself, uh, if they had experienced trauma and it had, uh, their nervous system. And so I really started to even see, you know, the bigger picture of, um, how trauma impacts us and how it is really like the gateway drug to drugs, you know, or, or whatever that looks like when they talk about that. Um, so at that time, you know, it was still just this healing and growing process. And as soon as I graduate, well, even before I graduated, I went to the first level of brain spotting training. And so that'll be 10 years ago here um, in a couple months. And so yeah, so that's kind of all history at this point. Aside from I was my dad died of cancer towards towards my last year of my program. And I took a step back because I went home and uh you know, set with my dad as he was dying and those pieces. So came back, taught swimming, was teaching skiing. And one of the fellow instructors that I worked with um, much younger, well, you know, about ten, almost 10 years younger, he had completed suicide in the same way that Dustin did. And he'd been a college athlete too. And so I really started getting even more obsessed with like, well, why do athletes complete suicide? I understand the trauma piece, but is it this head injury piece? Because right at that time was when All of the litigation was going on with the NFL, and so I started getting pretty obsessed with understanding Um, you know, why athletes complete suicide? Why, why is that a little different? Um, And really it all connected up, but I started going to a lot of different trainings and conferences and asking the experts and the gurus in the field that had been there 30 years, like what they thought and their opinions on things. And, and it really all just continued to circle back to, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences, the sports injury traumas, the concussions, and, uh, and like, how do we get rid of these things? And so, Um, armed with the brain spotting, I started seeking other types of modalities, uh, which would work um, collectively with brain spotting to try to uh, shift people's nervous systems even quicker back to the regulated healthy state of functioning. And as if they had, you know, were good as new before all those things happened. So um, yeah, so I've had my business now about eight years and this is Uh, the opportunity that I get to work with individuals and um, helping them heal.
1: Amazing. I first off want to thank you for being so open and vulnerable with that story. I think that's so important for other people to hear and be able to relate to and encourage them to open up. So having someone like you who does what you do, uh, I think being open and vulnerable is so important. So first off, thank you so much for that. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And uh, next, like, there's so many things I want to ask you diving into what you talked about there. Um, The first one going all the way back to your high school experience, and you talked about Um, what your coach was saying. And, you know, you have to be under this much weight. And I think hopefully things are shifting a little bit in that space, but we're hearing still a lot of, you know, there's a high percentage of athletes when they're doing studies, especially female athletes who are under eating. That's something I try to post a lot about on, on my platforms uh, about that. And I, I would love to know, because you talked about how you went through that, you had the stress fractures, you ended up going to see a sports social worker and they were able to get you kind of back into sport or interested back into sport through that. And I think sometimes people go two different ways where it's like, okay, this happened to me. So there's something wrong with sport in general, or yeah. it's like, okay, there's something wrong with that coach. How can we change the system? So I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts on that and how things are shifting and how we could better kind of handle those situations.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think first thing, you know, my mom was a teacher at the high school where I went and she knew this individual. And, um, I think that oftentimes, and I hear it a lot, even from my, um, young athletes, you know, all the way down to age 10 is kind of the ages I'll even work with. Um, we just really don't know what is okay and what's not okay. Um, so we enter into sport and these coaches are saying all these things. And I know to this day, my mom's just kind of like, well, why didn't you tell me he was saying those things? And it's like, well, that's what I thought was the expectation to make you the best. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think there's a piece here of really educating our athletes about what is and isn't okay. And what, um, what sports culture should be and what's healthy, and what's not healthy. And so a little bit of like foundational education. And I'm, I'm really wanting to advocate more, more and more about um, as soon as we enter into sport, we need all of our athletes to be able to have some nutritionists coming in, sports likes coming in and talking about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's healthy, what's not healthy um, and kind of allowing for these kids to get like a baseline and a frame of what's okay. Um, and and oftentimes, even you know, with my experience, my mom was just like, I had no idea he was saying those things. Oh my gosh! I'm just like, yeah, he was literally calling us. He would yell at us like, you know, don't get fat. You're being slow. It's because your butt's so big. I mean, it was just horrific. Like I didn't know that was you know not normal. Yeah. <laughs> um. And so it so there's a little bit of that with things. And then really, yeah, working with the um, social worker, it it took me into this just kind of like, yeah, this guy's a bully. But I don't know if I really um, knew until I started coming into my power as a woman, as an advocate. Uh, it, it probably wasn't until my late 20s that I really was able to look back on it and be like, my gosh, this full-grown man was saying these things to these young girls. This is not okay. And, and he would say just... Um, you know, inappropriate things also like, oh, your hair looks awesome today. Like stuff that's just not okay. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's that kind of stuff. And I really don't think that sometimes these kids know until someone's like, no, that's not okay. Um, and addresses it like that. So, you know, uh, (laughs) there's this, I, I, my wish for moving forward at this point, you know, we have nutritionists and we have sports psychs, in the last nine years, things have changed tremendously when it comes to professional athletes. Uh, now there has to be a mental health provider with most, most professional sports. Uh, we have this whole mental health registry with the USA athletes. And then we also, in most colleges now they have a sports nutritionist and have a sports psych, um, perhaps not enough coverage and enough, um, you know, work around that because it's just like one or two for hundreds of athletes, but we need to really, uh, drop those things into high school and middle school and these other youth development clubs and really make that a requirement. And um, having the parents more informed that if we have these uh, resources early, we can prevent these things. Um, because by the time that you're in high school and even college, these things started a while ago. And um, if you, you know, can, educate be proactive instead of reactive things would be different so that would be my wish and particularly when it comes to you know he was over training us it's like well you know i i believe that you know we've got phds in exercise science we've got phds in coaching we've got phds in um physical development of kids and so it's like we really need to be asking more of who isn't training our children in their level of understanding and education. And there are lots of ways at this point in time, especially with online um, education and so on, that they need to be trained to an extent so that they actually know what they're doing. Um, so it's it's all that kind of piece, you know, with the advocacy piece. But with me, it was really I took a step back. And, um, you know, started healing and recovering from those things and processing the grief of probably never getting to run again. Um, But then when I went on to college and found that, um, you know, real exercise science, that metabolic equivalent to time and some of those pieces that you could cross train and that you could still do this, um, that was really empowering and really moving for me because I was like, yeah, I spend, you know, three hours training on my bike when, they would go for like an hour and a half run, you know, so it's just twice as much, but I could still do it. Um, so, you know, lots there, but I guess that would be my wish and once. And with that nutrition piece, again, you, you know, us therapists, like even just doing this right now, it's like, Many of us, um, and and even sports nutritionists, because I work with one, she's a part of my uh, business, and what we do is that we're willing to donate our time. We are willing to try to be more proactive with these things uh, as opposed to reactive because it's really hard for us to have to undo the trauma and undo the hurt and the pain um, and the damage, essentially. I still have the damage that I deal with with my legs. So, um, you know, all of those pieces.
1: Right. Yeah. And I think I think you're on onto the right path with that, with education first, because I say similar things with even social media, like how we, we can't really prevent our you know kids from going on social media and dealing with some of the harmful things. Of course, the apps are trying to, you know, put in different rules and filters and things like this but we need a base understanding for the user. And I think that's the same with with kids in sports is that base understanding as much as we need to invest in better coaches or educating coaches how they should be speaking or like you said, with overtraining, like having maybe some sort of set program, like this is kind of a standardized protocol for uh, high school athletes and this is how you should operate within this protocol, uh, I think would be great. But I think also exactly educating the, the child uh, to know this is right, this is wrong, which is, it's hard when you're not exposed to all those things, or as a parent, you don't know what's going to come up.
0: Mm-mm, no. Um, and even when it comes to some of the things that came to light most recently with females and some of the Uh, sexual abuse and some of those pieces, you know, I'm having to sit here and have these pretty intense conversations with a 10 and 11 year old athlete, because they're going, what went on? What was the deal with that? And you're just like, well, they, you know, these individuals didn't know, and they'd never had a physical before. And so when the doctor touched them inappropriately, they didn't know that wasn't okay. So if anyone ever touches you, you know, it's like, it's all of these pieces um, that, uh, you know, the parents aren't necessarily thinking that this a coach that's been adored by the whole community and stuff, they they don't even fathom the fact that they could be doing something Um, that is harmful or not. Okay.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tough conversations to have, but I think it's, yeah, it's definitely important that everyone, you know, kind of has them or, or we open ourselves up to having those conversations because you never know how it could change someone's future or someone else. But um, what I also thought was, was really interesting was your talk or what was really important about that piece of the story of returning to sport and finding a new way to train is that oftentimes I get messages from young athletes where they're like, I am so in love with my sport. That's how I express myself. That's who I am. But at the same time, it's, it's what is breaking me. It's, you know, the coaches, it's what is actually bad for my mental health at the same point. And I think it's really cool how, you know, both can exist. It can exist that the sport you're doing in the situation you are in right now is detrimental for your mental health, as well as sport is good for your mental health. And it, they don't have to contradict and be at war with each other.
0: Yeah. And so it's interesting about that is, you know, to this day, I, I mean, I still go skiing. I work out every day. I love it. I just love exercise. I love sports. I love challenging my body. Um, and so sometimes I see, like you said, if, if there, there aren't the resources of the therapy and the processing, processing the grief, processing the injuries, processing, having to leave for a while, um, processing, perhaps never racing again, any of those pieces, um, you know, it will deter us from any uh, physical activity, right? So I'll get these individuals that have gained a lot of weight and or are carrying a lot of adipose tissue and have not worked out for 20 years since they blew their ACL playing high school football, and and it's such a shame because it's it sometimes it's not completely about competing. Um, it's that exercise piece too. So with Sport Psych, that's a huge piece of our work when we're working with a retired athlete or an athlete who's you know, having to walk away from the sport. I, I work a lot with sports concussion. And so we'll get these individuals that they're in their senior year, they're moving on to an extremely amazing college. They're not necessarily going to do sport anymore, but still having to process and, and deal with the past concussions and, and, um, processing the grief of no longer being a competitive athlete but still um loving to push yourself and get those endorphin rushes and and love sport perhaps even playing you know the community uh softball or frisbee or, or golf any of those things so i find that it will like you said kind of push someone completely in the polar opposite direction i never want to think about sports i never want to go to a gym again i never want to Uh, train. And, and that is so sad for me to see, because I know that I was pushed out for a moment, but then was able to integrate back in with, oh, I found I could do the elliptical. Oh, I found I could weight train more. Cause of course that wasn't completely introduced to us, which all athletes should be weight training. Every human should be weight training. But (laughs) at the time with the negative coaching, it was, um, you don't wait, train, you'll get big and bulky, which is Uh, um, ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) So it pushed me into loving another way of training. And then it was only excelled into another, um, um, you know, increased level of getting to train and doing the other, um, you know, uh, cross training modality. So, so yeah, so that's another big piece. And if you're an athlete out there who was pushed out of your sport, it's like, Even if you think that, oh, I'll never compete again. It's like, man, if you work with a sports psych, you will be able to process through all those things and get back to just loving moving your body and being a part of um, the health and exercise community again.
1: Yeah. I love what you said about moving your body. Cause I think it is super important for athletes to have an outlet where athletes are active. Like there's a reason why they got into sports and they love doing that. And that's how they express themselves. And so even if you are a pro athlete, is there an other way that you move your body that if your sport's taken away from you, you're injured that you can still do, whether that's, maybe that's yoga. Um, maybe that's, I don't know, motocross, like that. It could be yeah. something totally different. And, um, like for me, it's changed. Cause I was a national team snowboarder. Then I was a CrossFit athlete. And now for me, snowboarding, which was the sport I burnt out of and switched is now the sport that I just go for fun, um, and is an outlet. And so, you know, I have a hurt shoulder, well, I can still snowboard and vice versa. If I had a hurt, you know, ankle, I can still go do my cross training and, and do, uh, you know, improve with my CrossFit. And so it's cool when people can find that other modality, I think of moving their body rather than, yeah, like I tore my ACL and now I'll never move again.
0: <laughs> I know. And it's so sad for you to see that. I just absolutely, um, hurts my heart. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. So now like talking more, obviously in your story, you shared a lot of different traumas that you went through that led you to this work of really helping other people with traumas. So what are a lot of the things that you do and that you help with? Cause I know, you know, you've talked about like injury recovery and things like that. So what are a lot of these athletes coming to see you about?
0: So man, um, So so you'll see an individual who will come and they're like, oh, I'm having panic attacks, I'm anxious, I'm not being able to perform well. Well, instantly I'm going to, oh, okay, so any of that is going to be sympathetic nervous system dysregulation. So we have two ends of our nervous system. And so the sympathetic nervous systems are fight, fight, freeze. And if we're staying up here, those are the symptoms of the panic attack arms, legs shaking, feeling numb, feeling like you're outside of your body and like you're hearing things, but it's like a muffled, you know, when you're standing in the starting gates or something, Um, hyperventilating, Uh, kind of feeling shaky, like you don't have full control, and even just slowing down, like when you're on the hill or running or whatever that looks like. So the instantly when people are talking about the performance anxiety, I know that they're kind of stuck on is what we'd say. And so the way that we get stuck on our nervous system sits here. And every time something negative happens, either emotional or physical, and and even surgery, um, we hold on to that trauma or that uh, stress in the same way. And what that means is we, um, elevate our cortisol level with our amygdala, our little alarming system that tells us to make cortisol or the stress hormone and say, oh no, something's wrong. And it's that whole, like a uh, shock feeling like, oh no. Um, and an athlete feels that, you know, any athletes like, oh, you catch your edge or something. It's that, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. that feeling, or even when you're running in football and your foot kind of, um you know, ankle kind of tweaks for a second and you almost roll that ankle, it's that, oh no, moment. Um, So what happens is we uh, activate that amygdala and it just keeps getting elevated, 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 elevated out of survival. And it's really unconscious. So our five senses are constantly trying to keep us safe because it's really hard for our brain to make conscious memory about everything and rationalize and reason every experience. So even when your edge gets caught, when you're snowboarding, you're going, and and, uh, your whole nervous system is going, oh no, if we catch an edge again, we could get hurt. Um, But that's really unconscious so what happens over time unconsciously is we get really ramped up and so every little thing our nervous system is just like oh no oh no oh no oh no and so we're losing control um we're not in that flow so the issue here is we get a trauma memory network that is large and it gets full and so our brain and body so even like oh my gosh um you know my aunt died same thing oh no it shocks our nervous system it scares us it's bad sad Um, so it's ramping up that amygdala to be hypervigilant all the time and producing that cortisol stress hormone. Well, cortisol stress hormone is, uh, tearing down our cells. Of course it's a free radical oxidative stress, but it's also, um, Making it so that we can't sleep well, we're not recovering well, we're more susceptible to injuries because we're in an inflammatory state, especially with concussions. If we've got a whole trauma memory network of lots of sports injuries, lots of negative things that have happened in our life, breakups, uh, fights with friends, um, parents divorcing, any of those things, um, then, then we're sitting here with more of a higher inflammatory Um, going into a concussion, so a concussions, neuroinflammation. So it makes us more inflamed. Well, we know that we're more susceptible to injury when we're inflamed, right? So if your knee is inflamed, we know it's more unstable, right? So um, you're more susceptible to tearing one of those ligaments. So this is what starts to happen over time. But the amazing thing is that through these trauma reprocessing therapies, you're able to deregulate by reprocessing or detraining all of these negative experiences and really processing fully through them. Because when they happen in the moment, we just stuff them to move on. Um, It's like if someone cuts us off when we're driving. That's imprinted in us of like, oh no, we almost slammed into someone, but we're not consciously processing it. We have to get right back at driving. We can't sit there yeah. and pull off on the side of the road. Oh my gosh, that was so bad. I'm feeling it in my body. Oh, that was terrible. Man, I could have died. Like you know, it's like we don't fully process things in the moment, so we hold on to them and we're just ramped up out of survival. And you know, and if we were back in the primitive days um, where we're living around, we don't have any of these inundation of all of these signals and things coming in and stressors and pressures and um, you know risks in our environment right you know like walking down the street you never know what can happen someone could come up on the sidewalk hit you all these things that wasn't going on when you were like caveman days you know if like a boulder fell off a cliff yeah you'd be hyper vigilant walking under that cliff again but There weren't all of these things. So our nervous system's already hyperly triggered and hypervigilant. So you start adding in these other things, you're losing control and you're not in that flow state. You're not getting the recovery you need. You're not able to come down to the parasympathetic with our calm, cool, collected, confident, composed, rest, recovery, uh, feeling relaxed. We're seeing up here. So again, we reprocess, fully process, decondition, detraining, and then desensitizing. So when you're working with athletes at a really high level of, um, you know, the extreme sports, we're desensitizing them to the things that could go wrong, too, because you've seen them go on with other athletes. And we are so, um, man, our our brain is just amazing. It's an amazing computer. Uh, We only know 10% of what it's capable of. but. When we watch another athlete fail or get injured, we're imprinting in our brain that that could happen to us because again, that survival piece. So we have to reprocess all of those things too. When you've seen a gnarly uh, snowboard crash, you're going, oh my gosh. Your body got hypervigilant around that. So it's really fabulous that we can do this type of brain spotting. Like David Grand combined multiple psychotherapeutic techniques, which eye movement desensitization reprocessing. We know that when we trigger and stimulate the eyes, we're impacting the second cranial nerve in the brainstem. So that's um, actually allowing for us to uh, release um, the experience from our nervous system. Um, so that was found with research with EMDR of stimulating the eyes. And then also our eyes are reflexively, um, they will imprint a position when an injury or a bad thing happens. So you can actually find that in someone's visual path when they're talking about it and bringing it up. You'll find that weakness, like where we're mm-hmm. holding on to that experience out of that. Oh my gosh, scary. And you'll see like this, like um you know, muscle guarding kind of reaction when you find that position. And then you talk about it and talking about somatic experience. That's another one of the psychotherapies combined where you're feeling it in your body because your fascia holds on to things. Um, we fire spontaneously when something bad happens to our, our entire brain and body. We think of these neuropathways always like, oh, it starts here and goes here, here, here. No, it's the spontaneous boom of electrical impulse. So it's the same thing. So you're like, oh man, I feel like the potential of going off the jump and slamming my face again in my chest. It's like, okay. Oh, and then kind of my hands. Oh, and my feet. And you're like, yeah. So those are where your body braced and held on to that experience. Well, we let go of it then. We reprocess that that way. Then the other piece is the focus mindfulness aspect of completely going through it. So when I'm working with an athlete, like especially a, uh, you know, extreme sport athlete, it's like, okay, so when you went off the jump, and you didn't have enough momentum to make it all the way around. Where do you feel that in your body right now? And they're like, oh man, yeah, I knew I wasn't going fast enough. I knew I was going to slam on my side or my face. And you're like, okay, where are you feeling that? So you're able to let go of those things, that focus, mindfulness, processing, and allowing for the whole experience to be released and let go. Um, and so also the body's very wise. And so if you're sitting there just overthinking that, You will come up with other content and information that has been stored. So that trauma memory network of like, oh, yeah, that's wild. When I was 14 and learned this skill, I remember the same thing happening. Yeah, that was bad, too. I went off the thing. I didn't have enough momentum. And I slammed my face. And that's when I broke my nose. And so going through and fully processing those things. Most of the time when I talk to an athlete and I have them do the pre-work of writing out all of their traumas, life and sports they, they only put about a third of them on there because we mm-hmm. stuff them down. We put them away because we've got to get back out there. We can't just be ruminating and, and worried about these things and talking about them nonstop. That's only going to traumatize our brains to more. So when we're going back through this work, we're providing the desirable condition to release these things and allow for whatever to come up and get released. Um, the other piece with the brain spotting is we listen to biolateral sound. Well, that's kind of that hypnotherapy piece that drops us into the middle brain where we're making these, that fight, flight, freeze area, where we're making these changes. So we're not in our neocortex or outside of our brain rationalizing and reasoning it. Um, and so that's the desirable t- condition for us to dump this stuff out. Um, and you'll you'll notice instantly when you put bilateral sound on someone, like you start to just get more emotional, more limbic or emotional brain, and just stuff starts coming up. And those emotions that didn't get to be processed of the fear and this, you know, how scary it was and how awful it was, um, we're allowing that space for them to fully come up and be processed because the only way through emotions is you have to work your way through them. The more suppression of emotions, the more depression we get. Well, that's depression cognitively, Yes but the body connection, that's physical depression too. So the nervous system lowers its level of functioning. And so the piece here that was interesting five years ago that I integrated in with um, the brain spotting was looking at QEEG brain scans, right? So we can actually see on a P300, so um, how many milliseconds it takes to hear a signal and clicking a mouse. So um, that's auditory reaction time, right? And then visual, seeing something and what direction it's going and clicking a mouse. Visual reaction time connected, so that's physical. With a, Then we do a trail making where you're connecting dots. So eyes to physical reaction time. I can actually see an individual's depressed, slow down reflexes on acute EEG after they've had injuries. Then when they do the reprocessing, it actually speeds them up. So they have faster audiovisual and physical reaction times. And so you're able to show an athlete, no wonder you felt bad, sad. No wonder you were kind of depressed. No wonder you weren't loving the sport anymore. Your nervous system was depressed. It had to shut down. It was just too much. All this was too much. And so now you're tuned back up and you're able to uh, perform optimally. So yeah, I, like the brain spotting piece.
1: <laughs> I, yeah, I absolutely love this. I'm glad we're talking about it because I think people who listen to the podcast have heard me share my story with snowboarding and why I left. And a lot of it is exactly this. Like I always talk about how I wish if I could go back, I knew all this stuff and I was processing my injuries rather than move on to the next, move on to the next. And in my last season, what really kind of ultimately made me make that decision of leaving the sport was experiencing a friend get a serious injury and I was the first person on site and as she was going into shock I was going into shock I actually had to call somebody else to try to talk me down while I'm trying to you know help her remember where she is and what's happening and it's just such a crazy experience and especially with action sports where it's you're going through these injuries all the time like you're always falling you're crashing you're flying through the sky like 60 feet through the sky onto your back like it's not normal things that you know you would experience especially when you look back it's not like our ancestors were jumping off cliffs all the time and doing crazy things like that right so it is so interesting to to like hear more about these things and these tools that obviously could have helped because that's kind of the whole purpose of this platform is, you know, help people who were in situations like I was and um, the, the next generation of athletes. So it's super cool that there are these tools out there and we have the science, you know, behind it of how that could help. Cause I definitely can see how, you know, then all of a sudden I was depressed and I was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and I had to leave the sport because I hadn't gone back and processed. And over the past few years, I've been really thinking of these were traumatic experiences, injuries that I just never dealt with. And, um, yeah, sometimes I I'm like, oh, do I really need to go back and even redeal with them? Cause I'm not competing anymore or doing these, but in some ways I think it would be helpful because I would love to still, you know, push myself a little bit more when I go snowboarding and even in just everyday life, I think you still carry those things around and they trigger in different situations. That was a big thing for me was when I left the sport started going to therapy. And I realized that that cortisol release, I was seeking it out in other ways. So with relationships, I would always, you know, find something to be like, Oh, you didn't show up for me for this or this, where it was things. It wasn't their fault. It was just me Mm -hmm. trying to pick at things and cause things that would release the cortisol because I was so used to getting it every day in that action sport. So it's so interesting to, to hear you share about this.
0: Yeah. And it's funny you say that because I entered into right when I was at that pinnacle of seeking the therapy, I had entered into a relationship with another retired athlete who was very uh, aggressive. Like he was a rugby player and lacrosse like goalie and all that. um, And he was really abusive. And so I was in an abusive relationship for about a year until I started realizing like, oh, my gosh, the upheaval up and down, up and down, up and down, because I was addicted to that. Right, And I didn't know I was addicted to that. So until you kind of clear your nervous system and deregulate down, um, it's normal to you. And that's what you think is love, or that's what you think is excitement, or that's what you uh, crave, or else it's boring. Or, you know, it's, it's all that adrenaline junkie kind of stuff too. And, and I find athletes are very neurodiverse and gifted. And so they're craving that dopamine too. So it already sets us up for being a little more... Um, you know, entering into some of those relationships and situations. But yeah, at this point in time in my life, after all the work I've done, because I still do uh, brain spotting twice a month because there's stress of business, there's stress of life, there's relationships, there's stress in the world, our existential traumas going on. You know, we're not, not impacted by the pandemic and um, wars and, and um, climate change and, and all these really um, not serving things. Um, so at this point in time, you know, I'm constantly still clearing my nervous system because, again, it's preventing aging, right? So if we have a decreased cortisol level all the time, if we're recovering better, if we're sleeping better, we're actually preventing the aging process. So um, that's another piece that I, you know, enjoy because I want to be here forever and, you know, 120 years, like they talk in some (laughs) of these lifespan books of, um, so being able to help others and enjoy sport and be active and all these things. I don't want to die soon. (laughs) So, you know, it's that kind of thing too. And then also... Once you deregulate yourself, like you have a very low tolerance for drama or activation or others being a tumultuous and kind of aggressive or emotional manipulation and kind of going on. So it's really interesting too because it really changes how you're perceiving things and what you're allowing for in your life. Mm. Um, at this point, it's like the second if anyone says something, I'm like "Oh, that's emotional manipulation. That feels icky. I'm boundary. No thanks," because I just like being in my um, you know calm flow state bubble at
1: this point. So yeah. Right. That totally makes sense. And I think that's so important for anyone, like whether they're an athlete or not. Yeah. Like you said, like the trauma of just the world recently and you know, people definitely stress has been linked to so many different diseases and, and things like, I I truly do believe like stress is a silent killer at the same time, you know, there's good stress, right? Like stressing your body through training and then recovering and different ways that we can do stuff like that. I'm curious as a Yeah, a few more things I definitely want to dive into, but I'm curious from your perspective on, on like what people can do apart from, let's say, brain spotting, things like this. I love what you do. I think, you know, it would be amazing if everyone can just do it. It's not necessarily like not everything is accessible to everyone. Are there ways, things that people can just start doing like athletes can do at home or things like that? So when we talk
0: about the D training piece, so I'll talk about that first, then we'll go into mental conditioning things to condition the parasympathetic to be more dominant, right? Okay. Um, so when it comes to deconditioning, there are lots of bilateral sound tracks out there, right? So Dr. David Grand has a whole bunch. I have one on my website that I have put in uh, some frequency medicine too, and it's like nine bucks to the guy who created it. But Dr. David Grand stuff is on and it's bilateral. <clears throat> It's on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube and all those things. Well, you yourself can self-spot is what we call it. So putting on your headphones with bilateral sound and then just sitting down with a notebook and writing out, and we like handwritten because there's just a different connection with that. There's a lot of literature around journaling and um, you know, psychology in general, but just writing out your entire like trauma history of just like dumping it out of your mind and writing out the thing that happened and, and the emotions around it and why it upset you, what you would say to that person that hurt your feelings or hurt you and just writing, writing, writing unconsciously as we kind of unconscious dump and then tear it up and throw it away. <laughs> and then there's also, I'll have ads often listen to those bilateral sounds for 10 minutes after they train or something. And in going through that day of like, man, that didn't serve me. And then where do I fill it? Right. Oh my gosh. When the coach said that I'm not even trying, Oh, that that made me upset. It hurt my feelings. And and if you push yourself to cry, yay, because we know that we kind of get to this arc of like, the cortisol, the anger, and we can stay there, right? So we want to push all the way over to that sadness, grief, and resolve and letting go of that emotion. So it's kind of like this arc of emotions. And it's also an arc of um, biochemicals, right? So pushing up to cortisol, the cry release, oxytocin. So we're training our nervous system again to go up and down, up and down, as opposed to staying up and pissed off and, and frustrated, you know, because we stay here a lot, especially as an athlete. When they come in and they're super angry and kind of like frustrated, I'm like, ooh, good. Let's push you here. To try to <laughs> To all the way here. And that's where I mostly get athletes. Not all the time. Are they coming in? Oh my gosh, poor me. No, no, no. It's like, oh, I'm angry. I don't understand. And this is this. And you like, yay, you're activated. Um, but yeah, so it's that kind of stuff of allowing for, it. and even myself, you know, I've done so much work, but sometimes I will sit there and be kind of frustrated about something. And I'm like, gosh, I can't push myself to crying. I'll watch a sad movie and allow for it. Like the dog dies. And I'm just like crying. Oh no. like, yeah. to hurt my feelings. This guy like ghosted me. Stop texting me. Ugh. You know, it's like, so I allow for those emotions to be accessed in a different way. And that's what has to work for me sometimes. Cause I was certainly the person who was like, Oh, crying's weakness, leaving the body. You know, I need to go for a run. Like, you know, I, I really conditioned myself in high school to be, um, I guess <clears throat> too, uh, in, deterred from having emotions. Let's put it that way. You know, yeah. which is a lot of athletes, you feel like it's just, you just get tougher. This is what makes you tougher. And it's actually what makes you weaker holding onto those things, but nonetheless, so that's a really easy way that athletes can just start doing the work themselves and self-spotting. And I find oftentimes it's good. Um, you just let your eyes go where they need to go. Because the thing is, is we can find a brain spot as we call it with the eyes and weaknesses, but organically we will orient as well. So it's kind of interesting. So if you sit there and put on the bilateral or sound, or there's a bad practice and you're just sitting there in your body going, Ugh, where do I feel the bad practice? Ew, like my gut it doesn't feel good. And then just like opening your eyes and the first place they go holding them there and then kind of like going through it. Like, yeah, it was sucked when my coach said this and then this sucked and oh, I'm trying so hard. And it's just so frustrating. Cause I don't feel good enough and just kind of working your way through it yourself. Um, and again, the dumping, Uh, Sometimes even just listening to that bilateral sound when you're on the ride home. Uh, I've had clients do that and just be able to kind of let go of things so so that's kind of the deconditioning piece for sure. Um, And then conditioning. So if we are constantly in training our parasympathetic nervous system, that calm, cool, collected, confident, composed, and what we talk about oftentimes, the vagal tone or the vagus nerve is the 12th cranial nerve, um, and it extends all the way down. Um, So when we go through trauma, sometimes that vagal tone gets weakened. And so kind of what that means is it stops that neural communication to our gut and, um, you know, our heart rate variability and everything, our, our respiration rate. I find lots of athletes, you know, that vagal tone has gotten really um, weak. And so you'll have like kind of gut stuff going on, you know, you get diagnosed with IBS or something like that, um, or your stomach will go from, you know, being really active to not active and, and all those pieces. And, and you hear that, you know, oh man, my stomach was like... Uh, doing you know somersaults when i stand at the top of the course is like oh that's bagel vagus nerve activation. Oh, the heart rate. Oh, the not taking a full breath. So we know that's vagal tone um, decrease. So to strengthen that vagus tone, to strengthen the parasympathetic. So it's starting to override the sympathetic. We can do the belly breathing, the breath work. There are so many things out there. I love the Wim Hof stuff. Some of his breathing technique is really cool too. I find that that one doesn't make you hyperventilate as much. Uh, Sometimes the other ones I'll get the feedback from my athletes. Like I feel like I, hyperventilating. And I was like dizzy at the top when I was doing, it. I was like, okay, well, try the all the way in, pooch the tummy out and then breathe out and then breathe out further all the way in, pooch the tummy out. So I like that Wim Hof kind of pattern is a cool pattern. Um, and then also humming this is the goofiest one. And you tell like a teenage boy to do this. They're like, "What?" Oh. I'm like, no, you get on the chairlift and on your way up, you're going to hum, 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 your bet, your favorite song, listening to your song, you know, cause every most athletes uh, have that song to pump them up, which absolutely music is sound is really therapeutic and um, it's triggering more that parasympathetic. So I love it when athletes listen to music and that's a natural way. And plus it uh, boosts uh, dopamine. So really cool. But yeah, so listen to your favorite song. I wish you to start humming. As goofy as it sounds, it is uh, strengthening that vagus t- tone, and it it's also um, so engaging the parasympathetic instantly. So there's that smiling. So the other thing, and I guess I didn't talk about it so much, is our brainwave state. So beta is kind of that sympathetic. So that's the top. So that's kind of your anxiety and that hyper arousal. Um, and then theta is that calm, cool, collected, confident, composed, relaxed, parasympathetic. And of course, flow state kind of sits like right above that, you know, but if we smile, we are instantly engaging that theta wave and calming the beta. So as even if you feel like, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed or this, this is this, this, this like smile. And I know it's inorganic in the moment, but just keep smiling and smiling and smiling. And we know that we're engaging that theta. So we're instantly changing our brain state and then changing our nervous system state. Um, Also, there's chanting, there's whistling, there's laughing. So sometimes I'll have athletes that are just really at high level and have... You know they are just uh, wound tight, as we should say. So they're really, really susceptible of being up here. Um, sometimes I'll have them listen to like comedians, you know, like comedians <laughs> on uh, Spotify or Pandora or any of that thing. Watching a funny movie, anything to get yourself to laugh, because when we laugh, we know that we're engaging more parasympathetic, um, the theta wave, and strengthening that vagus tone. So there's ways to kind of like biohack your way into being in a positive brain state and constantly and training that. Of course, the positive self-visualization. You know, we we know all about visualization in sports, which there are many studies that have proven that that is absolutely um, valid science. Stanford does a lot on that. Um, And they're doing a lot with the VR kind of thing. So when you are recovering from a sports injury, you're doing the VR and it's actually firing spontaneously all these uh, peak performance pathways. So I really love the visualization and just, prior to doing that and trying to change your whole physiology into this uh, powerful um, zone kind of state of just uh, bringing up that powerful feeling of your best performance and seeing and feeling it and how it felt at that time and how amazing it felt in that endorphin rush and all that and then going into the visualization so that we're changing our physiology first to entrain that positive because sometimes athletes will go like, well i was visualizing and i messed up and and i was thinking the bad and bubble blah, blah, blah. i was like ooh well we want to uh create a foundation for really positive so um organically you know bringing up just like oh yeah when i nailed that a game or nailed that trick, or this or this, bringing all that up and that positive, powerful feeling, having it rush through your body, then going into the visualization. Um, yeah there's you know in the chanting you know uh you don't necessarily have to be a complete yogi within and around it but <laughs> yeah you know the the alms and the roms yams like those those are really powerful and and it's the gregarian monks knew that that's the what we call in frequency medicine uh, sulfagio frequencies and they say that um attaches to our chakras and and strengthens our energy field and, and just all these kind of quantum physics things that um biophysics can't explain you know that we We have these increased um, frequencies and and performance and um, vibrational patterns. Um, And then another thing, too, that's really interesting. So with frequency and all of our devices and we're inundated with these things, we really want to turn off all of our Wi-Fi stuff and all of our electronics, because what that's doing all day, every day, all night It is unconsciously, the signals are triggering our cortisol and serotonin. So we're not actually getting into that melatonin restful uh, dream state recovery state. So if we turn off all that stuff, we're going to sleep better. We're going to, um, you know, recover quicker, but we're also decreasing that cortisol level. So we're like, while we're sleeping, if we have all of these electronics on all the time, we're in training sympathetic state cortisol state, not good. So that's a really big piece that I'm telling athletes. And there's always resistance. I mean, I live in Facebook (laughs) complex here in uh, Bellevue, Washington. So it's like, what turn off my, my iPhone. I'm like, yeah, (laughs) you don't need it while you're sleeping. So there's that piece. And then another way to get yourself back to like a natural frequency that we're in, the grounding thing, right? So going out and putting your feet in the dirt. So sometimes with athletes, it's harder with snow sports, except for take your mittens off, put your hands on the ground, you know, like put your hands on a tree, whatever you need to do, but it will recalibrate you to where you need to be at your frequency. Frequency is amazing. It, It really, um, that's all our brainwaves are that's all our nervous system is it is frequency it's um the resonant frequency so we're changing our frequency always to this positive frequency um yeah so there's there's those amazing ways um of course eating foods that aren't inflaming you know athletes are always just like oh yeah, i'm fine i'm not fat." Or this is and I'm like no 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 it's like you have no idea like these chemicals and these things decrease your frequency um your positive frequency because the parasympathetic engagement it's engaging that sympathetic so anytime you're doing any inflaming thing to your body you're pushing yourself up to this sports performance anxiety so you don't want to be eating all the chemicals and sugars and those things um so that's another kind of uh piece talking about with the um, sympathetic nervous system. Mm. So yeah, and antioxidants, right? So eating your green vegetables and all that, that is obviously going to decrease that cortisol sympathetic state. So very cool.
1: Right. I oh, don't know. I love that. Those are all great tools that, that people can do and, and implement from home. And um, yeah, that that's a big one. Like what you said about food, like for example, I'm allergic to tree nuts. So oh. basically all nuts okay. other than peanuts, but I think also almonds is it's a very low. So I was technically I'm allowed to have almonds, but there is some, like, I don't feel a response, but I know when I was tested, there was a small response. So for a while I used to drink almond milk. And then I started thinking, although I don't like break out or stop breathing and need my EpiPen or something, right. there could be a low level inflammation, uh, inflammatory response to this, because I do know that I am allergic to this whole, you know, the whole tree nut family. And there is a small response. So even though it's not huge, like this is probably not ideal for me to be consuming. So I just stopped like taking anything with almonds and obviously anything with tree nuts, cause I don't want to die, but yeah. Whoa.
0: Oh, I know. And the the other thing too, if we've had concussions and so I've had multiple, you know, I had, I had some in skiing, I had some, you know, a bus wreck, then a car accident, like, you know, I've had multiple. And so I'm more susceptible to my uh, body going up to the sympathetic Mm. up to that inflammatory state. And it's just unfortunate people are like, Oh my gosh, I have to deal with this the rest of my life. I'm like, Oh, not really. It's just, you have to be a little more careful that you can get sent up to this high level of um, sympathetic easier because your brain and body learned how to do it. Um, so again, it's just being mindful. Like you said, of certain things, I don't eat a lot of things that it says that I have a slight intolerance to. I just don't do it. Cause I know I feel better if I don't, you know, right. so it's just that kind of thing. And, And then of course, you know, picking on alcohol and marijuana. (laughs) So alcohol is just water-soluble, inflammatory, you know, wipes out your gut microbiome, so wipes out your... Um, good bacteria, of course. Harder to have your serotonin and dopamine. We need eight hours of sleep to recover our serotonin and dopamine from the day before. If we're getting less than uh, five hours of sleep, or, or at five hours of sleep, we know that that's neuroinflammation, um, that we're in an, an inflamed state. So already sympathetic. So if you're going out there and performing, you need like nine hours of sleep, and you will perform optimally. But if you're like five, ooh, we don't have our brain chemicals that are that we need to fire our synapses in our brains. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of another little piece there. It's like that sleep is, ooh.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Sleep is super important. I think, well, on this, the snowboard trip I was just on for two weeks, I was telling people, I was like, oh, like I'm so tired by the end because I'm only getting like, seven hours, six hours. And they were like, well, how many do you normally get? I'm like eight to nine hours. They're like, that's a luxury. And I was like, yeah, but that's so important. Like that's like my foundation. Like I will go to bed super early to make sure that I get those yeah, eight to nine hours and definitely at least eight hours sleeping and like nine hours in bed. Cause obviously we don't, you know, you takes a while to fall asleep. You might wake up um but yeah it's crazy how people are just like yeah that six is normal and i mean everyone is different but it is it's it's interesting
0: I know and it's funny too because it's like that's a cultural thing that you were jump uh, bumping up against you know it's just like oh constant work hustle harder harder and so yeah. like, uh,
1: partying yeah. in the ski culture <laughs>
0: oh man yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I know and it's just like no like you don't have to ascribe to culture and uh, we're hoping these cultures are changing to a little healthier what I, I remember Bodie Miller's first book I bought it and I said like, oh my gosh I thought it was amazing growing up with Sea and all that and uh, he was like talking about drinking a six pack the night before and now I look back at that book and think, my gosh, he would have been amazing had he like got sleep and didn't drink and like I would be like, oh my gosh. So yeah. it, it's just funny to look at, like, hey, maybe you're performing optimally. Um, with what you're doing right now, but you could be performing way more optimally if you integrated some of these things in. So,
1: yeah. right. Well, yeah, you don't notice like when, when you're in that state all the time or you're doing something every day, you don't notice. And then when you stop, you're like, wow, I could feel this good. And that was uh, so an interesting case study on that was uh, I basically never drink, like very, very, very rarely, always kind of have been like that. But then on this trip, I was like, oh, I'm on vacation. You know, my friends are like, let's go to this brewery or do this. So each night, I probably had maybe one beer. Uh, I don't think I drank more than one beer a night, but for me, still, one beer was like a lot. Yeah. And with snowboarding, like completely all day, like you know, hitting cliffs, going the backcountry, like I was exhausted. And then when I came home, like I, so I actually I have a cold, but yet with this cold, the last two days my recovery has been on my I wear a whoop has been like near one hundred percent, like super high. And that's versus it was just pretty average the whole time when I was just snowboarding all day, which obviously was strenuous. So I was still doing stuff versus the last two days I've been resting. But yeah, with, with that one drink, right? Like my REM sleep was down. Everything was offensive.
0: And and I'm happy you brought that up. So detoxing is hard on our system. And so I still remember this from undergrad. It was that same cross-country coach, the exercise physiologist. He was such a a brilliant individual, um, he gave this whole lecture right before spring break about how we don't even get sleep when we've been drinking and doing some of these things because our body's working so hard to detox mm-hmm. and get it out of our system that we're not actually resting and recovering. And I, that will still so, always sit in my mind. So it's so fascinating that you said that just now. It's like, yeah, your body was working so hard to detox that little bit of alcohol that it didn't get its recovery. So that's so cool that you said that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. And that brings me to like one of the last things I wanted to talk about is I saw on your website, you mentioned HRV and you brought it up and we've been talking about the parasympathetic and sympathetic. So, uh, and we've talked about HRV before on the, on the podcast with different people, but I, I would love to like, kind of sum up what we've been talking about and HRV because a lot of people do wear wearables and things that they can track it. And, um, I like, I wear a whoop for like four years. So I know my HRV every day. Um, and I know a lot of people who listen, do it. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about HRV and why do some people have have much higher, like I've seen athletes with, I know that the scales are different for different devices, uh-huh. but like I've seen like high end CrossFit athletes, they're training like 10 hours a day with baseline HRPs of like 200. And right. I'm like over here, like I feel like I'm managing my stress. I'm training pretty, like I'm still training a lot of hours a day, but at the same time, I'm like my baseline is so low in comparison. And it's so interesting.
0: For one, those are gonna be the past traumas. Okay, so first and foremost, I always clear the past traumas in the trauma (laughs) memory network because that's gonna make our parasympathetic more dominant and make that vagus tone stronger. So you're talking about the vagal nerve again. So those individuals have very, very, very strong vagal tone and parasympathetic activation over sympathetic. So that's what's going on. So clearing all your old stuff will absolutely
1: uh, continue. Some of them them are young teenagers. That's what I was thinking. I was like, you guys are young young young. and you haven't, you haven't had these traumas yet. (laughs) I I mean,
0: that's the reality, especially head injury. Like I said, it throws our whole system offline, like instantly. It's pretty interesting. So our whole vagal um, our gut motility and everything will shut down instantly with the concussion It's wild. So that's why you have to do like a frequency specific medicine or, or acupuncture to get that, uh, vagus or, you know, that gut motility back online. So that's one of the worst things with the concussion. Um, but nonetheless, yeah. So they haven't had much trauma. Um, also, so the high intensity CrossFit strengthens that vagus tone too. So, and I guess I should have talked about high intensity training because a lot of athletes aren't doing that really, really, um, CrossFit's really great for that. Right. So you know that you are like pushing it. You are creating that threshold. It's unreal. Um, so that's what have been the, been some of the more interesting things with training compared to like when I was an undergrad and we we're just like, Oh, you know, the, you, you know, you need your 30 minutes of uh, cardio a day, just the elevated heart rate. No, <laughs> man, we know it's so much more beneficial to be doing this HIT training. So you're, you're seeing that these kids start HIT training probably before, for you did, because you were probably doing more of the strength oh, yeah. and the you know so what the I mean? you were doing them, the yeah. three types, right? Sports specific cardio and then and then the uh, weight training. But mm-hmm. combining those two together with that hit, yeah, that is increasing that vagus tone. That's uh, increasing your and they talk about resilience. Well, what is resilience? It's being dominant in the parasympathetic and strong vagal nerve tone that allows for that heart rate variability because our brain and our hearts and our lungs those are all um, connected. They're coherent, right? So the brain state will change the heart rate state. The heart rate state will change the brain state. And then the respiration rate. So all three are working interly connected. And that's that vagal nerve. That's that um, sympathetic to parasympathetic. So exactly that, right? So I love I love that you mentioned the, the CrossFit kind of hit trainer. So that's one. Um, and then also with it, so like I said, athletes start to get to that kind of trauma response of they're not even taking full breaths. So it is really that breath work. And so that's why a lot with the heart rate um, variability training or heart math, it's the breathing work. It's that breathing, um, because then it's changing the brain state and it's changing the heart rate variability. Um, so the breath work, the hit training, clearing the past traumas, um, gosh, again, not as much inflammation because we're pushing ourselves in sympathetic. Again, we want to be parasympathetic dominant. Uh, what else with the heart rate, um, training it, it's, it's really doing that breath work. It's, it's one that's like the biohacker or, or the biofeedback kind of piece of really changing that. Um, and then, like I said, the smiling and like all these other things. So those are all going to contribute with the heart rate, um, variability, but there is a brain spotter. So he's got, uh, three or four of these um, youth, uh, addiction treatment, um, camps, you know, where they go out into the wilderness and they do brain spotting and they do all this cool stuff and they do, um, breath work and all those pieces. And so he's got a ton of research that shows that the brain spotting, um, increases that, uh, heart rate variability and that resilience. So it's really cool. Cause we actually do have a, a practitioner in the field and he was a pacific athlete as well. And still does a lot of like crazy deep sea fishing, you know, where you <laughs> hold your breath for like, a. Oh yeah. yeah, same thing. So that's going to be heart high, um, resilience in that heart rate variability. So that's entrained also. Um, like Wim Hof, right? So with Wim Hof stuff, it's being able to tolerate that freezing cold. So he's parasympathetic nervous system dominant. So the sympathetic's not alarming so much that you're going into shock and dying. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, that heart rate variability. So the hot, cold stuff too strengthens that, but he starts with that primary breath work, uh, with his work too. So, but yeah, so hot, cold contrast, love it. That strengthens that vagus tone. Um, gosh, I'm uh, you know to an extent acupuncture does too i love all this stuff and then i also use audiovisual entrainment devices and they're about 600 bucks that you can get from the mind alive and they have done studies with the Dallas Cowboys that it increases their um, sprinting speeds. Hmm. But what it's doing is it's using the same frequencies that our brain are to entrain parasympathetics. So then that also increases your heart rate variability and that resilience. I love his devices. Um, I will see big shifts with insomnia, ADD, uh, sports performance, migraines. Like it's uh, anxiety depression. It's really cool because it's directly with sounds and lights through the frequency entraining our frequency waves to be at a different brain state. So it changes our heart rate state and our breath respiration rate. Um, yeah. So just cool stuff.
1: <laughs> Super cool. I've tried and I can't remember the name what it's like. I was, I was, it was like a screen. I'm looking at I had music and I had like all the electrodes on my what's it called? Yeah, I can't remember so what called.
0: So is that one oh gosh no, i can't remember what it's called either but that's neurofeedback of a yes a, neurofeedback yes of, yes of a kind and yes. and so that's beneficial to an extent they've really found that in training with the audiovisual entrainment, um for some reason our brain just likes it better and it might be because it's more f- frequency. I just really don't know because I've heard some big conversations on this with some of the leading world experts with the QEG brain scans and monitoring what they're doing essentially. And they see that they see shifts quicker with the audiovisual entrainment, because I've okay. looked at some of the neurofeedback stuff because you hear great things and not saying that it doesn't shift you and help you just saying that they've, kind of found that this is more effective and it's like 600 bucks and anyone can have it. So I'm just like, yeah, I get that.
1: And plus it has- Neurofeedback assembly. is like, I feel like it probably costs a person like 10 grand to buy a machine yeah. or something. Yep. It's yeah,
0: it's really expensive. And that's the unfortunate thing. So the guy, Dave Siever, who created the Mind Alive device, he had a lot of as- adverse childhood experiences and was really passionate about it. So he makes it so that those devices are still really affordable and user-friendly because he found it to be kind of like, this world, you know, my QEEG device, I, I paid a fraction of what they cost now, five years later, you know, it's like, those medical devices are very expensive. And it's like, wow. Yeah. Um, again, like you were saying before, it's like, it's hard to access this stuff. I mean, even myself, when it's like, I was looking into seeing a new homeopathic provider. Cause again, that's kind of frequency medicine and some of the stuff. And it's like, it's expensive. So I'm like, okay, well budgeting this out when I go see that person, you know, everyone has to kind of budget out you know, what they can afford and when the timing is, and you know, so yeah.
1: Right. Amazing. Well, I'm so grateful that you shared like what you do, the, your story, as well as, you know, some ways that are cost-free that people can, can help themselves at home. I have three questions I ask everyone oh. at the end. Um, and so, yeah, I'll get into them. The first one is of all your daily habits, what is the single biggest game changer for you?
0: I mean, I'm just going to say sleep is the given. So I will say exercise.
1: Okay. Exercise. Just...
0: Either the hit or weight training. That's, yeah.
1: Awesome. And then the next one is in one word, you're, or so you're looking back on your life later on, maybe you're at 120 years, hopefully. Um, and you looking at the impact that you wanted to have made or that you've made, how would you define that in one word? Cultural. Culture, uh, <laughs> you can do two words if you want, <laughs> um,
0: cultural shifts.
1: Cool. I, I like it. No, I think, uh, I think, I mean, just the conversations we're having about mental health and you sharing your story. And then also obviously the work you do with athletes is, is on that path. So appreciate that. Um, the third one is what does, you know, the saying all in mean to you? Whew.
0: Um, all in for yourself. You know, when I saw your stuff, I was thinking like you have to be all in for yourself, healing yourself, caring for yourself, expanding yourself, making yourself the best version you possibly can. Because once you are, you are unconsciously energetically and consciously influencing others to come up to a different frequency, a frequency of self-love, love, love, collective healing, um, just by healing yourself, being all in. On this journey of expanding yourself to the best version of yourself you are influencing and pulling others and changing the entire world of universe around you.
1: I love that. That's an amazing definition. Well, I just want to say, appreciate what you do. I appreciate you sharing your journey. And like I said, you know, being open and vulnerable with it, uh, this will help a lot of athletes. I know it's these, this is a conversation I wish I had when I was like 15. And I know we got a lot of 15 year old uh, athletes in the, in the audience. So again, appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.